so it's interesting. I'm Carl Hennigan, some of you I know. Uh, Julian there knows all well about this talk. So we've got an uh, eminent uh, expert in overdiagnosis from the RCCP. So you might skip in and go, I agree or disagree or shout from the back. But what's interesting is there are many aspects to evidence-based medicine, aren't there? You can think about, well, I'm just interested in a certain disease and how we diagnose that, how we treat it better, how we manage it better. Or you can think about some aspects like this, about the methodological approach we take to healthcare problems. And that's some of the work we do lots, get involved with lots of different organisations in the centre, working in a sort of TARDIS effect way. And why do I say that? There are a small number of people in the centre but we work with lots of people globally in, in areas like this. So it feels like when you walk inside the centre, it gets bigger because of all the people who contribute. So Julian is actually one of the people who work in the And I first did this talk, I went up to Stirling about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, with a lady called Margaret McCartney, who's a Scottish GP. She invited me up there and said, Can you come to Scotland? Because we're really interested in this area and we want to solve it and sort it out. It's about 250 people. And then I'm going to be taking this talk, as I was saying, to Barcelona in September, where I'm doing a keynote on overdiagnosis and too much medicine. So this is my own journey in thinking about overdiagnosis and too much medicine. So when I was first thinking, got invited to the keynote, I was actually in New York. And when you go down the streets of New York like this, on the right there, they have these signposts which are, I thought, caution it says. And as you see the portion, you think, well, that's about the traffic. But as I carried on further down, what I saw was actually, was actually, I think it was caution for vans like this that existed in New York. And at the side of the road, you can get a CT scan of your brain on the road to early detection. And I'll come back to that. I think that's what the caution was really about. So I went back to my hotel room and said, so you didn't talk, it's always on your journey, take photos. And when I got back to my hotel room, I was like, oh my gosh, if, you know, you get one of these, in America you get really big series screens, don't you? You get a TV screen, but in America you get massive screens, bigger than the bed almost. And there's me and my feet. And you can see, and then it's got, go to 23andMe.com. Welcome to your audio kit today, so I can get my genetic test kit. And I think, gosh, this is a real big issue in America. And, um, but I came back to the, coming back to the UK, this is everywhere. And this is the, the news headlines in the UK, 120 pound test to spot genetic heart failure. And this is in the Daily Mail, and it's telling you affecting half a million people in Britain is being made available in the UK today. So that was on the flight home, so oh, well, that's interesting. And then, as I got home, I got this letter. And this letter was, to me, as my urgent message from spectators. It's now over two years since your late last eye examination. As we mentioned in our previous lesson, you were due to have your, your eye test on 20th, 9th of August, 2014. Call us immediately or book online and for your local optician. Now, interestingly, um, I have a family history of glaucoma. And if you've got family history of glaucoma and you're aged over 40, you get free eye tests. So there's a sort of incentive for them to bring you back every year. But the question then is, if you're going to teach about these things, is the question to me, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I should have the examination, and why should I have the examination, and what's the evidence for that examination? 
And it's amazing. At the maximum at the end, how many people participate in healthcare intervention without asking the question is, how much benefit do I get? And how much harm do I do? Make sense? And we do it to ourselves. Never mind, we do it to patients. We do it to ourselves all the time. So, when I looked up the evidence, here's the evidence of systematic review and economic evaluation. We're all on the EHC course, you know we're at the top of the evidence tree. And this evidence tells us that based on two randomised trials, so as per usual, in a very important healthcare condition, we found the problem of not much evidence. Extrapolating from these and assuming accelerated progression with advancing disease severity. You have to stop at that point, don't you? What does that mean? What do you think it means? What I'm wondering is how they define in the RCT how about physical coding. Yes, so I can think of at the, the more advanced you get, the more you get a title like Professor, you get something that it allows you to say things really simple, like, are they making it up? <laughs> yeah. You think, oh my god, they must be doing something really technical here, they're making an amazing model. Actually, they're just saying, well, we're going to go somewhere in the 20 years and we're going to make up the game because that's the way. Glaucoma is a 20, 30 year disease, it's not something that's going to affect me now, it's our treatment, is it? So they're basically making it up. That's why I put that. What does that mean when you stop and think? Okay, what does that mean? Okay. Prevalence would have to be about 3 to 4% in 40 year olds with a screen of interval 10 years to approach cost effectiveness. So I'm going, why do I get offered every year? And it could be every 10 years. General population screen at any age thus appears not to be cost effective. And selective screening of groups with higher prevalence family history might be worthwhile, or this would only cover 6% of the population. So it's going to screen every 10 years, not every year. So that's interesting. So then I think, well, I'll go back to the US. You guys have got lots of screening in the America. Obviously, it's going to be well informed. So I'll go to the US Preventive Services Task Force and ask of their guidelines, what do they say? They do their own systematic reviews and economic evaluations, and they come back and say, after reviewing all of the research, have not recommended for or against routine glaucoma screening for all adults. So that leaves us in this period, don't we? And so then I go, well, okay, I'll come back to our informative website, which is NHS Choices, which is telling me that I should have regular eye tests for the problems such as glaucoma can be diagnosed and treated as early as possible. So you ain't, does anybody feel reassured yet what's going on? So do you feel informed that whether you should have a, an annual test or not? Because I feel like I'm getting more confused. As soon as I look at the evidence, it's saying actually not quite clear. As soon as I look at information like NHS choices, it's saying you must go and need to for the risk diagnosis. So, when you look at the systematic review, and the next going to teach the self-pedic test, but I think it's important to be able to understand some of the basic principles of diagnostic tests. To say, if I have a positive test, what does this mean to me? How much difference does it make? How much is the chance of that being true or not true? So one of the things we do is use a natural breathing. So I'm just going to talk you through this, but by third year I'll have this approach, and I could spend more time on that. Okay, if you take a thousand people, the chances of me having glaucoma are about 5%. Right? The chances of me not having glaucoma are predominantly 
percent chance of not having it. So at least that's important information. And they're aware of it. That's in my remember with my family history, it's about four to five percent. If we take the worst tests that we say, some of the tests that we've used in the IO intraocular pressure, if I take just a sensitivity of 10%, that means that 50 people with the disease, only five of them will test positive. But a specificity of 81, which is really low, so that's the proportion of people with the disease who test positive. If take the opposite of that, what if it's 81 Because I'm interested in the proportion of people without the disease who test positive. So that means if I use a test with about sensitivity of 10%, which is the worst test you can find, a specificity of 81, out of 186 positive tests, only five will have the disease. So that's miserable, isn't it? And there have been tested like that in the past. But moving on, some of the tests have better sensitivity infections. Now let's assume the best test I can have. So if we go for my screening, I did the retinal and all that. So take the same sensitivity, but prevalence is the same, but sensitivity is now 90%. That gives me about 45%. So the test positive is much better. Yeah? But the specificity here of 90% really good test. Anybody would tell you that's the test. So, out of 140 positive tests, only 45 people have the disease. So if I have a positive test tomorrow on glaucoma, there's one third chance I have glaucoma, there's two thirds chance I don't. If I have a positive test though, I end up on lifelong treatment, don't I? Now, these sorts of discussions not in the open air about how you should present information and think about what you should do for yourself and whether you should have the test. It doesn't tell me as well as I have one test negative and 10 years later should I have that repeat test, this is for if I do an annual test. But one woman came up after I presented that she said, ah, oh, you was wrong though. I had a test that was negative and three years later I had glaucoma. But what she missed different was is that she becomes symptomatic and then had a test. Symptomatic is completely different to screening. That at some point the peripheries of her eyes started to become she lost awareness here and she noticed that and then got a test. Oh the problems have gone completely through the roof, hasn't it? So it's a different test problem. So um, I still haven't been for my age examination. And I'm still buying ten pound pair of glasses, and you can get them in pound saver for like a pound. And I buy them for about ten pounds so far. I leave them. I'm still not sure what to do. Um, you might want to think about that. So anyway, coming back, that's not the end of my screening journey because I seem to be now at the age group. Anybody here who's above forty-five is now in the age group where you are a target for anybody who thinks they can do something testy. So here's me from the health screen appointment invitation to Mr. Carl Hennigan. Dear Mr. Hennigan, to invite you to a health screening clinic. And I've not got to be in for like hours, and I'm really privileged to say, why have I been invited? We write to a small number of people in your area for an appointment survey. And it tells you, this is a simpler system that keeps our administration costs low, meaning we can offer extensive health screening at a fee that is exceptional value. Rest assured, we have no other information about you. Well, we don't know, we don't know, especially in the start, but if I, I'm going to give them a ring and find out about this, so that's part of my journey. 
If you wish to take up this appointment, just let us know what time is best for you, or if you prefer a different date, we'd be happy to change the appointment if one is available. And look at this. We encourage you to convert the content of our premium viewer. Our premium package is £129. Now, you're not allowed to answer An annual cost. How much do you think it costs to have a GP for a year in the UK? It's free. If you want a GP for the whole year, they're the same insurance. It's 129,000. How much? 24/7 GP in the UK, and that allows you access to them, be able to see when you're on appointments for any condition or excellent. How much? Yeah, but how much do you think the practice gets for you per person? So one screening test costs 129. You can go to your GP tomorrow, have blood pressure. You can have eye tests. tells you here we're going to measurements such as family history, height, weight and blood pressure. A simple blood test to measure your cholesterol. Well, I said, well, look, when you go, ask them the sort of information that why are you having the test? What's the benefit of having the test? And when you get, you get this sort of information like this, which I have to say is at best useless. And you can see it, this is it. Why, why do I need this check? Right? The NSS Health Check helps to identify potential risks early. By having this check and following the advice of your health professional, you improve your chances of living a healthier life. Hold that thought. Now, when you're going to look at the evidence, you can look at this general health check in reducing adults with morbidity and mortality from disease. No, no find that health checks had an effect on the number of admissions to hospital, disability, worry, the number of referrals to special additional visits to doctors or absence and through it. So most of these outcomes were poorly defined. So basically, again, we are putting in work where we're saying have this on an annual basis and the evidence says we have no idea if this makes any difference whatsoever to your health care. It will increase the number of people with new diagnosis. It will increase the number of people on medication. Whether that translates into any benefit is not clear. And when you think about these things, let's put this up. Many of these things and ideas are not new. This is a very interesting paper that I the freely available by Jack called Brian Haynes and David Packett in 1979. He went to the workplace diagnosed all these individuals in the workplace and said, have you got hypertension or not? And followed them up and noticed how many people then had increased psychological distress, days off work and absence and tears. And that was 1979. So a seminal paper about thinking about the rational for what you're doing. It's not always straightforward that if you lower somebody's blood pressure by 5 or 10 millimeters of mercury, that you're going to get a positive outcome. Anyway, so, well, I thought, hmm, maybe there's one, um, when I was up there, I was in Scotland, obviously, I thought, there's a bit like in the obesity, isn't there? I thought, well, maybe, 
Maybe if I go there, I might be able to keep thinking I like to lose a few pounds on it. Maybe my GDP is going to lose 8 to 10 pounds. I've always wanted to lose that 8 to 10 pounds, and I'm finding it difficult. So I'm going to see my GDP is obviously the superman of the world, the poor woman, who can help me. Now, when I ask this question, I ask this question about two ways, but most interventions don't apply to the people we see in practice. So, two GPs in the room, any more GPs? Three. Have you ever prescribed Weight Watchers to anybody? Because it's freely available, isn't it? Mm. When prescribing it, what have you thought about the benefits of that intervention when you're giving it? Pessimistic. Pessimistic. Why? Okay. Hmm? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the world is better. Alright. Semi world is better. Fine. So I thought, when I'm giving it to people, I think, you know what, what are the chances of a person actually using the intervention? Forget what the intervention does. Are they actually going to turn up? Or are they going to walk out that room and say, stop that doctor, what do you think he's doing, giving me a referral to Slimming World? Who does he think he is? Yeah? So, if you take out a thousand people again, at the top here, and this is based on the evidence of everything, so you give out an invitation and say, as the trial for the said, here's your weight, what's the weight? This is not, this is for people at risk, they're all the way. Okay. You go to them. 115 will take up the intervention. 885 don't take up the intervention. Yeah? So immediately, you've lost 88.5% of people who don't that. If you take the 115 and take up the intervention, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah? Then, of them, 62 will attend all the classes. Six won't even attend the first class because someone will get in the way on the way there. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, work or in the way. And of them six, yeah. And of the fifty, sorry, if we come back to the fifty-six of the there, and fifty-three do not attend all the classes. But on average, they all lose about two point five people. So some people start off, they'll do three or four, yeah, and then they go off of it. But they'll still lose two point five people. Come back to your 62, attend all the classes, it's generally a 12 week course. Yeah? If you follow them up at that end of that class, is, 50, they'll lose about 5 kilo, but if you come back at 2 years, only 13 people would maintain their goal weight, and by 5 years, only 10 would have maintained their goal weight, of which 9 will be a woman and 1 will be a man. That's our strategy for solving the healthcare crisis. If you give it to 100 people, you get to one person. If you give it to 1,000, you get to 10 people. And the people it goes to are the ones who like classes, probably, and like going to Weight Watchers, and in the first place would have probably paid for it anyhow. And people that tend to be older, not at work, not have all sorts of other responsibilities that get in the way, so then they end up in this pipeline. And a huge proportion of people end up here, which are the general population where you probably went pessimistic. I don't even think this person is even going to go. What am I wasting my money for? So as a public health intervention, this is useful. But what you see is this figure all the time. This worked. 5.4 kilos is a great one. Now it's been around for 40, 50 years. Is it, is it supplying the benefits of solving the problem? Why is obesity doing this? In fact, you can argue it's a perfect intervention. You do this, you lose this, come back to the cycle and we charge you more money and we're going to charge you health more and more money, just like we do with yours. So it's exactly the same. And I think that's useful. So it's not about the effect of it. It's about who does it apply to. Put it in fact, you're always going to play on that.
interest or pleasure in doing things, I gave myself a score of one. Feeling trouble falling asleep, staying asleep or sleeping too much, I got all three. Um, feeling tired or having little energy, I gave myself a two. And poor appetite or overeating, depending on which part of the day I was in, I was either had a poor appetite or I was overeating. So I could have given myself a three, but probably about a two. Um, trouble concentrating things such as reading the newspaper or watching TV, that was a one. And by the end of this, what had happened is if you total that score up, I actually had a score of five to nine on the PHQ9. So that means I had minimal symptoms, poor educate, call if worth returning one month. Interested to see how a score what kind of score ten. Support, watchful waiting, antidepressant, all psychotherapy. So we brought these scores in where, again, things have the connotations of the scores. What do they mean? Why do we get them? And then you can end up very easily going from here to here. Now, we have about 3 million people on antidepressants in the UK. And I can't quite understand. Every time I speak to the doctor, I go, well, I don't really start with antidepressants. But actually, somehow 3 million people have got them in primary care. And it's interesting, again, when you go and look at some of the evidence, it's really interesting to look at the evidence. This is about the false positive and negative and the validity of the diagnosis of depression in primary care. And what's interesting about that is the identification of depression is strongly associated with increased familiarity with the patient and the presence of suggested clinical cues such as history of treatment for depression, patient depression, presence of depression. What you would hope about that? Well, this is really interesting, isn't it? You start to understand that the more times you turn up, so if I turn up with my score of nine, I'm going to turn a bit down. You probably tell me to go away. But if I turn up the second time, you might start to go, hmm, that just increases my chance of you going, hmm, I'm going to give you the treatment just through familiarity. And moving on, if you look at the evidence, it's really interesting. The two misidentified groups, which we False positives and false negatives. That's people with a positive test who don't have the disease. And the false negative, yeah, ones who don't but do, were indistinguishable in their clinical characteristics, impairment, distress, or mental health history. So there's a whole swathe of people in the middle who get a positive diagnosis or a negative and could, could or could not have disease. And we've no idea how to distinguish it. And it looks like familiarity is one of the most important. So the more times you turn up, the more likely you are to get a diagnosis. So, argument is, are we doing benefit or are we doing harm on this basis? 
And so this middle ground between true positive are most clinical characteristics. And they discriminate these two groups on the basis of their knowledge of the patient's clinical history. And everybody tells about what we need in primary care is we need more of your own GP who you have familiarity with because that's a good thing. It's an interesting aspect, but if according to this, that might not be the case. And I think it's a really interesting area of the indiscriminate of a really nice piece of work in here to try and work out what is really going on. Because if this is the case, it suggests as soon as you turn off the right knowledge, but make sure next time you turn off the different doctor, don't come in too late. But then we'll stick around to the And that's what we've done to swathes of young people. And we've done it in the past with diazepam and benzodiazepines. And we may look again and think, oh my god, what can we do? But, again, this is the bit which really pains me then. When you go and look at the evidence, so okay, say, 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 let's take that away. Let's just say everybody who does them has died depression in primary care. So it's true. Yeah? You are able to discriminate. But then look at the evidence. Look at the insufficient evidence. This is another. exists around most interventions to determine if they are effective. Of this, this was the 2009 review. 14 studies, 16 comparisons. <coughs> 10 examined tricyclics, 2 SSRIs, and 2 included both whole compliance with placebo. So not a lot of information about the stuff we use. The worldwide evidence, 1364 in the treatment group and 919 in the placebo group. All were typically 6 to 8 weeks. There was no dose information and were able to comment on the appropriate situation. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But look, I thought, okay, well, this is 209. Everybody's been working like mad on this working to solve this issue. So this paper published just in 2014 is an update to 15 January, February. The acceptability of pharmacological treatment for depressive disorders in primary care, systematic review, and network meta-analysis. So we write the book on now. We're trying to compare one treatment to the other. The evidence was mediocre a week because there was a small number of studies with observation periods of longer than 12 weeks. Reliable comparative analysis of long-term effects was not possible. How many people do we only treat with antidepressants for 12 weeks? No one. But all the evidence stops at 12 weeks. And we put people on it for a year, two years, three years, five life long treatment. And we have no idea what's going on beyond 12 weeks. And six years after this is in still not answered. Nobody has a clue. That's quite concerning in its own right, isn't it? When you think of it that way, oh my gosh. So we put people on two years treatment, but at 12 weeks we should be going, I don't quite know what to do, actually. Maybe we should be stopping everybody at 12 weeks. Stop, see what happens. The problem when a feature of people who do the Cochrane review is they say the problem with stopping is the side effects of these drugs when you come off and the withdrawal symptoms are so bad really difficult to get anybody off the drug. So you stop it about two weeks, it must be all terrible when it's a drug. So they end up going back on. So interest interest in this recurring theme that many interventions, like we started the glycoma, not much evidence of the long term effect. We have lots of people doing it and on treatment. And here it is again. So efficacy of pharmacy treatment depression in primary care. Yeah although we compared groups of similar interventions 
instead of single specific teen tension, the number of trials in some substances is low. And there's this important aspect, yeah? Despite guideline recommendations and widespread use, ongoing discussion of the extent to which antidepressants have clinically relevant effects compared with placebo. That's right now. In the meta the effect size compared with placebo is frequently considered rather small. Yet findings from published trials tend to overestimate these effects because of publication and reporting bias. So this issue of bias exists. So not only are we saying the effects are small, they only go to 12 weeks, we've got some real core biases that you're learning about, thinking about the impact on effect sizes, that are there already. Always overestimating effects. And I think we're having discussions at the moment that the problem with many of the scoring systems is we tend to just say, oh, well, evidence is moderate or high quality or low quality, and actually come back to, and we're thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this, because, remember, you have only 20 years old. It's not really that, you know, you still haven't got this. But actually, it's more, what is the impact of this on that treatment effect? Not it's high quality or low quality. I mean, that's where, we, where you start, but now we're starting to well, okay, is this enough to overturn the effect? And this is what you get, this is from clinical evidence. Many of the treatments we use, only of the, the ones clinical evidence, is they take the stuff that's of real importance, don't they, that's being used and likely to look Half of the treatments are unknown effects of what we use today in practice. Only 11% are definitely beneficial, and about 24% are likely to benefit. And you've got this whole host down here, going right down here, in effect for harmful. So actually only about one in ten treatments could be actually say. Yeah, I'm pretty clear I should be using this treatment. For about two, three out of ten, we could be going, okay, I'm pretty happy, I'd like it to be beneficial. The evidence says we go that until the way. But everything else you should be going, hmm. For about seven, six or seven out of ten of every treatment, we should be going, hmm, not sure. And I've shown you quite a few already, haven't I? Okay. Now, interestingly, when I had my flip, I got worse, because I get this reactive action, and I got a high temperature, high pulse, and a high respiratory rate, and I thought, I've got pneumonia here. That's really unwell. My GP practice in Bowman I went to my GP practice in Bowman and it was in an express clinic, and I know the nurse, and the nurse I called Eula, about 20 years and I walked in and she said hi how are you and I said look I'm really unwell and just as I was about to tell her before I said anything else she said before we start I'm going to take your blood pressure please and I was just sat there going oh my gosh I've come in for some really clinical symptoms and I'm feeling unwell and I'm being asked to do something which is about a system-wide health check and or they need me because they haven't had my blood pressure for the last five years and they'll get paid. And I thought that was classic when they talk about what the patients feel like when you come in and they're decomposing the genitals. And the idea that my blood pressure was in any sense reliable when I was that unwell is clearly ridiculous. Right, how are we doing stuff? I'm gonna stop there. I've got some more on that, but I'm gonna stop there. If you want to come in five minutes. Stop that for a minute, see if anyone's got any questions, I don't know. Smiley, Julian. Level 1 diagnosis.
you start switching over from a one-year certainty to a longer period of certainty. As long as the probability of that certainty goes up, chances of a stroke and how much benefit do I get if I take this treatment. Cardiovascular yeah. risk doesn't do that for you. Yeah, do you have, you know, there's still people turning out, um, RCTs and meta-analyses claiming a 1% absolute risk reduction by lowering the biomarker. So that's so that's a bit probability of around about 10% of your cardiovascular risk in acute vascular event, not mortality, just an event, which could be an angio in the next 10 years. If you give cholesterol lowering, you can reduce that by about 1%. Yeah. But at about half percent increased risk in diabetes, and a bit of weird that everybody's saying, oh, and you didn't collect all the adverse event data, did you? Mm -hmm. So we know our ideas. So if you had both event data, it's actually 1% and half of them, and you go, kill them, isn't it? Yeah. And you could go, we, in 2005, we were talking about everybody going on primary prevention of aspirin. And we got rid of that idea. Yeah. Because we just said, no, we haven't, we at least had sufficient data to benefit from the harm to say the reduction in heart attack of 1% is outweighed by the 1% or slightly more increase of GI bleed. So the net benefit is flat. Are we better off knowing that, and that's long-term data, 90,000 people, and then saying, let's not bother? Or imagine if you have the data in front of you that says 1% reduction in heart attack, don't quite know the long-term follow-up, don't quite know whether there's any GI bleed. At the moment, we will be choosing it. That's the model we're using, which is quite interesting. When you think about it, when I show you an example, you suddenly go, hey, hold on a minute, maybe we should step back and go back to the door. Our ability to do something in medicine is overpowering and overwhelming. And I've been thinking about it while I'm doing this journey. I thought, right, okay, when did anybody in the room, when was the first point ever you came into contact with something that affected you, not another patient, you, an overdiagnosis or too much medicine in your life. You'd like to have a go at that. No Had asthma forever, but happened to be having allergies. Went to a new GP in the US and they said, Oh my gosh, you need corticosteroids. Okay. Because your asthma hasn't responded this week to your, or it hasn't been responding to what you do normally do. So we were getting the diagnosis wrong all yes. that time, and new treatment that was not effective. So I didn't take it because I thought, but I'm having allergy, allergy symptoms after my asthma for Okay. And when did that start? How old are you then? Uh, 38. 38. So that's a few years. Yeah. All right. And I've never met him before, and 
need not worry to like you know, describe some graphic factor. Because the U turned up and had the GP, the pretest prior probability, the Bayesian reason in his mind had gone beyond one or two percent. He probably thought, oh. What, why is he turning There's up? more chances of you having a theory wrong if you turn it up. I don't want to really get it. Yeah. So that's the litigation idea. Anybody really think that's the first time I'm going to I'm going to pull up on this talk. There's a picture of me when I was, I think it was about six or maybe seven. When I went to see my doctor with tonsillitis. And I had no idea how I ended up in the hospital and had a tonsillectomy. And at the time in the 70s, within hundreds of thousands of tonsillectomies, one of the seven kids in the 70s had a tonsillectomy. Um, now we don't do it, hardly at all do it in the same way. You have to have a very clear criteria, and I'm not sure we should be ever doing it. Um, but I'm interested in whether the potential downstream effects are the ones that we have to not expect it whatsoever. No evidence like grommets, there's no evidence to benefit. You're, by the time you're nine with grommets, you get back to your hearing's normal. I don't know if you ever looked at that. We stick a hole in kids' ears, there's no idea we do that. But by the time you're nine, you're back to where everybody else is. There's a short term symptomatic benefit. But the long term, and the downstream benefit, what are the harms to me now not having a pair of tonsils? Is it that every time I get an infection now, it goes beyond my tonsils, I don't get any windows, I don't have the ability to fight that infection? Or do I get really unwell with the respiratory tract infection? There's an interesting question. You might have. for people like surgeons to go you should not be having anything like this unless you've got in a participating in a trial and we've got at least five to ten years follow-up on some individuals because the idea of putting a hole in somebody's eardrum and then looking at it so yeah you get the short term everything has a, has a benefit there and then symptomatic where you'll get a short-term benefit if something will happen well in this case you get old you'll stop going swimming but you'll do all these other things, like putting it in front of the class, making all this, and at some point, you know that people grow out And they return to a point where about eight or nine, they're exactly the same in both groups, when you look at them. So what is it we're actually doing? You're doing this for treating individuals, because we think we can do something. We can't afford to do that anymore. That's the problem. We haven't got the resources or the problem. We just simply can't afford to do it. Well, they are starting to pick up on this in news organisations. The people are starting to pick up on this. So, like, you know, if you turn up, so if you go back to the X-ray, you do a whole sort of radiation aspect is really interesting. When I say the CT scans, in America there are about 60 million CT scans annually done. It counts for one to one and a half percent of all uh, uh, potential cancer, given the radiation dose for all these people. 
but at some point someone's going to go x-ray and that's why going back 30 years ago when we used to x-ray people when they were pregnant to see if there was a fetus in there that gave rise to double dual risk or leukemia in childhood so it's like you get this it's like it keeps coming it's like we keep the same mistake so antidepressants are the old diabetes ct scans are the old x-ray then for a ct we're not we're, we're a bit worried but we don't think that's the answer, but we are giving you a dose of radiation that's really hard. Would you like to know about the risk of that before you start? And I think we have to accept in the system there are, yeah, there are some harms of not doing something, but there are also harms of particularly in prevention of doing something. And we're in a bit of a pickle now. And um, breast cancer is a very good example of the debate that's going on. Can I finish with a question, Carl? I'm wary of time. Yeah. Um, one question to finish, and we can have a we can carry on the discussion right. down in the, in the, in the commentary. Okay. See? Um, we're all living longer. Yeah. Uh, arguably, we're living better lives. Yeah. So um, me. Nobody really knows why we're living longer. Um, there are some interesting stuff that people want to know if this is a pre-pregnancy issue, that actually the people having babies are healthier when you have a child, which gives a huge advantage to the child. That's one. Two is you have the early infection. That gives you more people arriving, and we've got rid of the war. So the biggest difference between male and female life expectancy is killing people in wars, male in particular. So we get more people to the age of 65 now than we ever did. When you get to 65, our life expectancy is not that much increased. The Victorian standards can be up to 65. You know, it's actually not that we live in 20 years. It's actually four or five years longer. So it's not like when you start to look at so getting more people to not die prematurely is the number one. That I agree with. So there are people out there who might want to invest some time and you'll agree with my risk of certain death. But that's not people with cardiac risk in the young. You can't screen for them. So there are people you can't screen for, but there are things. So get more people back. When you get these people then to the age of 65, this is a real dilemma for us. I know people, and personal people, for instance, should we be investing our money into, say, for instance, when you've got cancer, should we spend 10 or 20,000 pounds on treatments that might extend your life by two or three months, and monitor you and put you all through this clinical, or should we spend our money on really super high quality palliative care, quality care, that said, we're really going to look after you in this period of your time and move away from some of the medical things. Then, as it turns out, if you do early palliative care, people live longer, the evidence suggests, which is really interesting, counterintuitive, isn't it? So, where do we want to have our compassionate mode? Do we want to know where are the really important issues we put evidence into and say that's what we do really well? And a very good example of that is the illustration of mortality, for instance, one of the best examples, if you want to reduce mortality from heart attack, is the golden hour. You've got to get to people within an hour of good heart attacks. You give them thrombolysis. And if you do that within an hour, you'll save about 60 lives per thousand. Within one to two hours, it comes down to about 30 lives per thousand. So you want to look at the interventions. Now we monitor 90 minute time, not 60. The best place to have a heart attack is in Reading, so you're not bad, you live near there. 
but it's not Oxford. But we don't monop- not we don't look at the interventions so like the unseminary. This is what we should do really strongly and well. And I think that's our position now, is trying to understand the bits we should versus the bits that we have to provide more evidence longer term of the things that might make sense. Yeah, 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 and actually we do have to accept that. Actually we might need to do a trial for five or ten years in this area to really see if it's going to be a benefit or not. And we may have to come back and go, oh actually, should we revisit the cholesterol argument? Because one of the arguments about heart attacks or that kind of cholesterol is our risk is coming down. So we are not the same population as the evidence was derived from in the 80s. And so, um, really interesting times in the Dallas, but we cannot afford to spend like 500 million pounds on a treatment that actually has no benefit whatsoever, <coughs> based on the simple criteria that you're learning in the EBHD course, the quality of evidence, the biases, and the effect size, and who does it apply to. If you understood any of them principles, and the policy making would never use this treatment whatsoever. And most of the people say positive, no idea what the people are actually doing. Yeah. There's also the fact that the public also don't yeah, I've been astounded at the number of 25-year-olds who've met. I said, so why are you on this antidepressant? He said, well, I turned up one day with a GP. I said, I was feeling a bit down. I said, I bet the PHQ was 10, not 9. And they ended up on antidepressants. And I'm like, and we call that in the re- in, in when I'm out chatting. I said that's called the real world. When you turn up, you come out of university, you get a job, and you think, God, this is hard work and it's a bit miserable. <laughs> and life's a bit depressing. And you go, yeah, you've got to learn all that, haven't you? And it takes about 20 years, and then you suddenly think, oh, that's not that. <laughs> you know, it takes it, doesn't it? But if you turn up a couple of times at your GP in that scenario, yeah. they're going to intervene. And it's, the, there's something about the experiential and learning this stuff that might go. Questions. What's happening? Turn up. Chances are you'll get better based on this and this. 